Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 6. If you've been here for a while, just open it and it'll fall open to that page, I'm sure. Matthew chapter 6. While you're turning there, I want to say to you first, I love coming to church here. Man, thank you so much to our worship team. Appreciate what y'all have done for us all these months and today especially. And also want to tell you that um, sometimes the way we build our lives doesn't necessarily match up with the way it ought to. A lady, young lady going to college uh, found Mr. Wonderful, or at least that's what she thought he was. And she decided it was time for her to take him home and meet her parents, who before they even met him knew that he wasn't Mr. Wonderful. And uh, the dad especially was happy to help the daughter understand that. It didn't help that he was a young preacher boy and he was going to this particular college in order to try to learn enough so that he might be a pastor in a church. And uh, somehow they met, they fell in love, and it was time for him to meet the, the girl's parents. And so she took him home and as is... You know, kind of one of those things we, we dads love to do. After dinner one night, the dad said to the boy, the young preacher boy, he said, uh, we need to have a discussion in my study. And uh, color drained from his face. And he said, yes, sir. And the daughter totally freaked out, went to her mother crying. Daddy's pulling him aside. And she said, it'll be okay. Just trust your daddy. So they got into the um, study over there. And... Uh, the dad said to the young preacher boy, he said, So, son, uh, what are your plans? You want to marry my daughter. What are your plans? And he said, Well, sir, uh, you know, I'm a uh, student at this college, and I'm studying to be a pastor, and uh, I'm a Bible student there. And, and the father said, Yeah, but what are your plans? He said, Well, I, I guess I'm planning on being a pastor. He said, all right, well, help me with this. He said, uh, where are y'all going to live? And he said, well, you know, I'm studying to be, a bio, you know, to be a pastor. And so when we go to church, then we'll have either the church will have a parsonage, this is back in the old days, uh, and we'll live there. Or if not, then we'll just have a house, I guess. But I'm studying, and we just believe the Lord's going to provide, that God is going to provide a place for us to live. And the... Dad kind of, eh, okay, wasn't the best answer he thought, but all right. He said, all right, so uh, you are engaged. And he said, I noticed there's no ring on my daughter's finger. What's up with that? He said, sir, I'm a, I'm a Bible student. Uh, I'm studying to be a pastor, and I don't have a whole lot of money yet. And the dad said, well, is she going to get a ring or not? And he said, well, I'm going to study hard, and I believe that God's going to provide for us the money for a ring for her. And the dad went, uh, huh. And so he said, all right, well, let's try this. Uh, do you plan on having any children? He said, oh, yes, sir, absolutely. He said, how do you plan on supporting my grandchildren? Sir, I'm studying to be a pastor, and I believe that we're supposed to get married and that God, when we have children, God will supply for us everything we need for those children. And the dad just kind of shook his head, and he said, okay, you're free to go. And he sat in there for a while by himself, totally by himself, thinking. And he walked out, and by this time, the girl and the fiancé were off doing something else. And the dad walked into the kitchen where Mom was anxiously awaiting the report on the showdown. And she said, so, honey, how did it go? He said, well, the good news is, well, she said, let me give you the bad news first. The bad news is he has no plans, no job, and no money. 
She said, well, what's the good news? He said, well, the good news is he thinks I'm God. All right, now that you're joining me this morning, I want to take that and let's put it to work in our lives today. Where do you put your trust for the basic necessities of life? Now, I want you to be careful before you answer that, okay? Because I know that the Sunday school answer to that is, well, I trust God. The church answer, the good, accepted Christian response is, well, preacher, I trust God for all of the basic necessities of, of, of life. And, and I want to say to you, that's a great answer as long as your feet follow your mouth on that. Unfortunately, that's not often seen in Christian people. As a matter of fact, what I want to kind of push to the forefront as we begin this morning is that our tendency is to trust anywhere else, whether it's self or our fiancé's dad or our in-laws or our rich uncle or whomever, we, or the government, we'll trust anybody and anything until such time as we believe they won't supply for us. And then our default is to trust God. I want us just to look at this passage together. We're in the model prayer, which is in the, right in the smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. That's no accident. Because what we find in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the model prayer, is God's design for kingdom living for Christian people. This prayer is more than a mantra that Christians are supposed to rub and recite half-heartedly or even half-mindedly and believe that somehow we've prayed when we've recited it. Jesus intends this to be a teaching tool for his followers. And we've already seen in the first half of it, the first three petitions, that Jesus says there the first and most basic point of prayer is to position yourself where you recognize and accept the sovereignty of God in your life. Our Father... The one who is in heaven, let your name be holified. Let your kingdom come. Now, normally we go right into the next one, but I want to pause and let that settle in. Let your will be done as opposed to my will. And then all three of those are driven by on earth as it is in heaven. And those three petitions with that bottom tagline on it all come together to say to us, God is God and I'm not. Isn't it interesting that half of what Jesus is teaching about prayer is centered on making sure that we let God be God? Before he ever gets to this one that we're on today, which is, and give us this day, what? Our daily bread. We'll talk about that in just a second. And my question to you is, is that all? Is that all we want God to give us? And my answer to that is, we don't even want him to give us that. Well, not not you, but Christians in general. That's a pretty big claim, so let's see if I can come back and justify some of what I'm saying as we go into this. So, all of that points to before he ever says the basic necessities of life, he spends half of the prayer establishing the fact that God is God. It's no accident because the fundamental struggle that we have in our lives is letting God be God. 
And I would submit that before we even can get to the point where we can pray correctly as it relates to the basic physical needs of our lives is we have to make sure that we're putting God where he belongs. Well, okay, so let's come back and let's deal with all of that. One more time, I'll read the whole thing. So let's go to verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day... Our daily bread. Now, I want to stop there because that's the verse we're going to deal with. But as I read that in the English Standard Version, many of you have other versions, and you'll recognize that it didn't read exactly that way. As a matter of fact, when we come to look at verse 11, we find that there's a variety of interpretations, and it's all tied to a single word. It's a word in the Greek language that Jesus coins. In other words, he makes up a brand new word here. Now, most of the Greek New Testament, as we look through it, we can go back into ancient Greek writings and classical Greek writings and all that, and we can find correlations for words that are used all through the New Testament that were used before the New Testament was written. That shouldn't surprise us. It was the language of the common people, and it was a language of trade. So it shouldn't surprise us that we find that kind of, you know, broad spectrum of the language. What does surprise us is when we come to the New Testament, we find a word that's not used anywhere else. Paul does this a lot. I've said it before because I like to make up words like holified. It's a genius who can make up a new word. Present company excluded, of course. So Jesus now uses a word that's never been used before in print. Okay? That shouldn't surprise us either. I think he probably comes up with all language when you get right down to it. But in this case, it's the word as we read through this, give us this day. Now, the our daily bread is the key. Three different options. Scholars will come to one of three different positions. One is to take it as that which is necessary for existence. In other words, it would translate this way. Give us today the uh, the necessary bread to survive. Now, how much bread is that? And the question is, well, for how long? Second position is translated as give us the bread for the current day. In other words, today. Now, that's the way I read it. There's a third option, though, and that is give us the bread for the following day. In other words, tomorrow's ration of bread, give it to me today. I like that prayer. Don't you? Let me come back and tell you just how much you do like it, all right? Because you've proven to me, most of you, well, I hadn't been in most of your homes, but I'm just making an educated guess here, that most of us prefer the third interpretation. Now, let me just pause the sermon for a minute and do a little bit of Bible teaching for you, okay? Sometimes in Scripture, you'll come across, if you're in your own personal Bible study, I always want to hand you tools for your personal Bible study, okay? Sometimes you'll come across a passage that different translations will have really different kind of statements about it. And this is one of them. There's a world of difference between give us today our daily bread and give us today the bread that is necessary for us to survive. So when you come to that, you need to have a good way of approaching it rather than just saying, well, it's whichever one I like the most, okay? That's the most popular way of dealing with questionable text, but unfortunately it's the most irresponsible. So you look at, there's several things you look at. One, you look at how the word is used in other places. Can't do that here because this is the first time it's used. 
Another way you do it is you look at the people to whom it's being spoken or written and you figure out how they would have heard it. I'll come to that in just a second. And also then you can take it and look at the immediate context, what's around it, how does it fit what's there. So the reason I think that this is the best way to take this, the way give us our daily bread today, is based on two things. First of all, it fits the context of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to take the time to go there, but later today, go and read from chapter 6, verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Now, we know the end of the chapter, which is the one that says, uh, well, let me read verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But if you'll go back and read what comes between that, the emphasis that Jesus seems to be giving us is, it's a trust thing, and it's a trust thing for every part of your life. Look at the lilies of the fields. Consider the birds of the air. And so when we get hung up on the daily stuff of life, the teaching there is you just focus in and put your trust where it belongs. And all of these things will be added to you. In other words, don't sweat it. Okay? Now I put that with another one, which is the affairs of their day, the basic context of the time. And that is that in those days, first of all, the Jewish day started at sundown. So we start ours at midnight. They just backed it up about six hours. So whenever the sun would go down, then they were automatically into the next day. All right? But day laborers were paid at the end of the day. So the way to process that is when a person works in the field all day long, they come to the landowner and they say, okay, the day's over, pay me. He pays them for that day, but within a handful of hours, if even that, the new day starts. So he's paying them and they use that for the next day's bread. See how this all begins to fit now? So whether you're getting it at night or in the morning really is kind of beside the point. I think what Jesus is saying here is he's making up a word that they get. And that says, as we go into the day, we pray, give us what we need for this day. Whether that day starts at 8 o'clock at night or at midnight or whenever you want to make it start. The idea is, give me what I need now. Not give it now, but give it according to the needs of now. Everybody with me? All right, so let's take that and let's beat each other up with it. What do you say? I don't really want to do that, but it has a way of doing that. Let's just leave it first at the point of food. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is only dealing with food here. Matter of fact, I believe what Jesus is doing is he's going to take here and in the next petition and he cuts up the human person, and he says, you have this point of need in your life, that's the physical. You have this point of need in your life, that's the interrelationship part of you, and also the spiritual part of you. You have these various needs, pray according to the need of who you are. And this is the physical level. So I think he's saying more than just relative to bread, but let's deal with just the bread part of it. You see, in those days, they didn't have the kind of stuff that we have. They didn't have a local Jewish H-E-B or Kroger on the corner. All right? So they had to work for it, and then they were paid, and then when they would go and they would make bread, which is the staple of a Jewish diet. So Jesus reduces this to the most basic level of how they live. 
That shouldn't surprise us too much. If you're any kind of a psychology student, now my wife's the psychologist in our family. She's been living with a case study now for 30 years plus. They gave her extra credit for that when she was pursuing that degree, I think. Now, there's a psychologist of yesteryear called Abraham Maslow. Maslow developed what's called a hierarchy of needs. His basic concept is this. On the bottom floor, okay, picture a pyramid, and at the bottom, the foundation of it all, is where you start. And you cannot go from the bottom level to the next level until your needs are met on the bottom level. It just so happens, oh, by the way, and you move your way to the top, at the very top is self-actualization where you can, as the army used to say, where you can be all that you can be. But his whole premise is you can't get to that point of fulfilling who you are and your destiny and all those kind of things that we throw around. Uh, you can't get there if you're something underneath that, a basic level of need is not being met. The most basic level is food. Now, it's not just food, but it's our physical needs, food and shelter and safety, those kind of things. That's the bottom shelf. It's the foundation. If you don't get those things, then you can't move up to the emotional level and then beyond that. Let me give you an example of what I mean with that. Rarely does a week go by, but that we have someone comes into the church and asks for help. Now, It is occasional, not often, but occasional, that someone comes to the church and says to me in one way or another, I really need help with a spiritual problem. Most of the time people walk in and they say something along this line, I need food. Or I need help with my rent or whatever. Most of the time, the request that we get for help as a church from people who are not part of the church, just off the street, coming by, they come in saying, I need help, and now Maslow's terminology is on the bottom shelf, okay? And so I could set them down, and I could take a Bible, and I could smack them in the head with it, like a lot of churches do, and say, you need Jesus, smack back! They ain't hearing that. You know why? Because they're hungry, Maslow's right at this point, I think. And that is you've got to deal with the bottom level. Is it an accident that Jesus starts there when he starts talking about how you pray for yourself? Give us today the bread we need for the day. In other words, to expand that sum, and I don't think I'm doing injustice to the text at all. I think this is exactly what Jesus was driving at. Give me what I need today, physically. Now I'm going to go back to a question I asked you earlier. Do you believe that that's a valid prayer? Should we pray, give me what I need today? If I go like this, if you say like this, then you're disagreeing with Scripture. That's a problem, okay? I don't mind telling you it's a problem. So we agree, at least here, that we should pray that way. But we don't live that way. Okay, I I know you're thinking, you better back that up. You're accusing me of not doing it. Okay, go home today. As soon as church is over, walk into your cabinet, open it up, see how much food you have in there. Let me tell you how I learned this. I, I hate this about me, but it is the truth, so I'll go ahead and share it with you. There was a time 
that Teresa and I, uh, at this point in our lives, had one child, our oldest son, Brandon. And I was a youth minister in a small country church. Matter of fact, when we went off to college, I got this job at this church. I was making $30 a week for the three of us to live on. Now, Teresa and I eat like birds. <laughs> I eat like a vulture, but she doesn't, okay? That's a whole nother discussion, okay? Our son, even when he was three months old, consumed mass quantities of food. More so than a $30 a week salary could purchase. So I began, I began this problem in the way I was perceiving stuff. We would go to the grocery store with a $20 bill and have to buy groceries for a week. And I mean, that's all the money we had. There was no savings account. There was no slush fund. 20 bucks a week. And we had a son. Now, uh, we made some choices, okay? I ain't doing regular diapers, okay? We did throwaway diapers, all right? I'll not eat for a week before I have to do. And Well, anyway, that's a whole other story. $20 to the store. And before we would go in, we would sit in the car. And we would pray this prayer. God, this is all the money we got. So we need you to help us when we go in there to buy food that we buy exactly what we need, nothing more. And even then, we need you to stretch this dollar and that food. And we'd go in and spend $19.95. So we had five cents left for a week in case there was a doctor's bill thrown in somewhere. I'm telling you, it was bare bones living for us. And I think that's getting to what Jesus is talking about. This piece of scripture, this one verse, is about trust. Jesus is getting us to pray at a point that stretches most of us as Christian people because he's driving us to the issue of trust. I would have preferred it if he said, pray this way, give us today the bread I need for a year. Wouldn't you? Your cabinet argues that you would. Okay, so that's where we were, and that's a healthy place to be. And so I want to flash forward to a time later in our ministry where now we had three children instead of one. And our three children, all of, all of them, uh, did very well when it came to eating. In other words, they ate, I start to say et, <laughs> they ate regularly, lots regularly. But we reached a point in our finances, I wasn't making $30 a week anymore, and so one day I caught myself after going to the grocery store and everything was put up and all the sacks were emptied and all that and I opened the, the pantry door and I saw that it was full of canned goods. And in my mind, I said, finally, I don't have to worry about tomorrow's food. Now, where's God in that? You see what I'm driving at here? Jesus reduces it to the bare bones level. 
He could have easily said, pray, as one of these translations like to make it say, there's no precedent for what they say when they say, give us today the necessities of life. I don't believe that's at all what Jesus was driving at because the whole focus of the Christian life is where do you place your trust? And most Christian people in a drop of a hat will say, I trust Jesus for my eternity. I just refuse to trust him for my groceries. So where do you place your trust? If we just reduce this to a daily bread level, where do you place your trust in that? Do you depend on God for your food or Kroger? So it's a prayer of trust. But I don't think we ought to just limit it to our food because I think what Jesus is doing is he's addressing this whole part of our lives called our physical necessities. So, here's a couple of questions for us. Do we trust God to provide for us? Remember the illustration I started with? The preacher boy? Who's he trusting God for? Or who's he trusting for the necessities of his life? And his answer was God. But you see, for the father-in-law in in that situation, that wasn't good enough, was it? And I think most Christians fall into the father-in-law category there. It sounds good at church to say, I'm going to trust God for everything, but when the rubber hits the road on Monday morning, and i got to get a tank of gas, and I only have $20, and it takes 120 to fill it up, well, it's gone down now, it's 118 then who do you trust for that? And the answer is MasterCard. Uh Uh-oh. So who do you trust? And here's a follow-up for you. Do you have those... I want to be careful here because I think this is one of those parts of Christian life that modern Christendom really doesn't like to hear. And I say that because the big-time preachers... Uh, one of whom I saw throw out the first pitch yesterday at the Astros game, they don't want to talk about this part of it. You see, we, we, we play the game of saying, I trust God for this, but our feet don't follow that too much. And one of the ways our feet don't follow that is when we get a need, we're very adept at broadcasting that need so just the right people will hear it. You know what I'm talking about with that? I used to work with a guy, a minister. One of the reasons some of you look at me and go, what's the deal with you? You know, I go to lunch with you and I, I try to pay. And some of you are going, what's the deal, preacher? I used to work with a guy and he always let it be known, oh, I sure could use a new whatever it is. And he knew that if he said that in certain circles, magically it would appear on his doorstep somehow. Because he knew exactly who he needed to talk to. Let me give you the polar opposite of that approach. George Mueller. If you haven't done any Christian reading, a great biography is George Mueller. He was a pastor in England, and he also, he, he was, well, I'll tell you part of the deal. He went into this church. They said, we want you to be our pastor. And he said, well, hold on. I'll be your pastor under one condition. And they said, what's that? He said, all of the rich people are buying the good seats down front. Now, see, in Baptist church today, the good seats are in the back. But he said, all of the rich people are buying the good seats down front. 
and you're forcing the poor people to sit in the back. He said, I won't come be your pastor unless you stop that practice and let the poor people sit up front. (laughs) And I thought, oh, he could never pastor these days. Beyond that, he started walking the streets of England. He started seeing these orphan kids everywhere. Kids with no hope. And God placed it on his heart to provide a place, food, shelter, Maslow's bottom shelf, for those kids. Plus, by the way, the spiritual training that comes with it. And so he started that orphanage. And he was met immediately with overwhelming needs. Just like my children, those kids in that orphanage loved to eat. And they loved to eat a lot. And there was a lot of them. And it took a lot of money and stuff like that to do it. But Mueller was committed to trust God for the supply and not people. So prayer became his primary weapon in that struggle. You go read his story and you'll find multiple occasions... When, when they finished the evening meal, he knew that they had nothing to feed those children come breakfast time. Somebody would ask, what are we going to have? And he would say, God will supply. Time after time, refusing to go out and broadcast the need, knowing that God knew the need, and knowing that God was capable of filling the need, the basic need of food. He said they'd sit down. He'd set those kids down when it came mealtime, knowing there was nothing to feed them. More than once, knock on the door as they're sitting there. One time for breakfast, knock on the door. It was the local milk delivery guy. And he said, hey, I got this deal. People don't want it. Do you mind if I just give you this milk for the kids? Uh, Okay, we'll take it. Food, the same way. You see... Here's, this is the rub for modern faith preaching. Faith is not driven by me deciding what my need is and then expecting God to meet it. Faith is driven by God saying, here's my plan for you. Here's what I expect from you. Now trust me to supply the need. Our problem tends to be that we hear that And we say, okay, we'll get this part right. We'll do what you want us to do, but it's up to me to make sure that the need is met. That's not the prayer. What is the prayer? Give us the bread we need today, today. So, who do you trust for provision? Are you broadcasting it? Are you willing? Now, here's the third one. All of that's the fun part. Now I'm going to start getting on your toes. Here's the third question. Are you willing to downsize if God told you to do that? In other words, if all of the physical stuff that you have is getting in your way of trusting him to the point that he says, you need to get rid of some of that stuff, get a little more destitute so you'll look to me. Are you willing to do that? I didn't think so. Let me go to the next one. (laughs) You know that one of the great figures of Christian history I know some of you are not going to like it because he was Catholic. One of the great figures of Christian history is St. Francis of Assisi. You know that he was raised in wealth and a lavish lifestyle. His dad was loaded rich. And God broke through to him in such a way that he went back and he got rid of all of the stuff that his dad left him. 
That's part of the Franciscans of modern Catholicism. That's part of their whole approach in life is to get as simple as you can in life so that all the trappings of life don't get in the way of your relationship with God. I'm not suggesting you do that unless you have to in order to be able to trust God. It's at the point when we have nothing and the control is totally out of our hands and we turn to God with that, it's at that point we realize that God is capable of every need that we have being met. I'll say it for you. Amen, preacher. It's hard to say amen on some of this stuff because in our American society, we write God right out of the picture on day-to-day needs. And we call it technological advancement. If God said to you, downsize could you do it? Would you do it? Struck with a story told by Dallas Willard. Now, he's got some stuff that will challenge you if you read it. And he's talking about this, I call it simplicity, he calls it something else, sacrifice, I think. But this basic concept, the discipline in our lives as it relates to our spiritual lives. And he talks in there about a situation in his life. He and his wife, while he was a graduate student, I think it was at the University of Wisconsin, if I remember right, while he was there, he and his wife didn't make that much money. He was a graduate student, and so he's trying to get his way through. But they felt like the Lord was saying to them, on the first of the month, when you get your check, pay all of the bills, buy the groceries you need, and then whatever is left of your check, give it away. Now, if God says that to me, and he might, especially after I preach a message like this. You just never... Uh, if God says that to me, my first response to God is going to be, huh? And then my second response is, are you sure? And my third response is going to be like, Gideon, Lord, I need you to do something really special like this. Like, you know, bring a Martian down and have him sleep on top of my new barbecue grill and then flip on the next night. I need to know if God's going to tell me to give everything away. But I want to believe that if he told me that and I knew he told me that, that I'd be obedient. So that's what he told Willard and his wife. After you pay all your bills, first of the month, give the rest of your money away. You talk about a trust-building exercise. He said it was an amazing thing that God did as they were doing that. He said one day they gave it all away, three days after they did that, wondering how they were going to get by the rest of the month. He got in his car, and somebody had taped a $20 bill to a steering wheel. Still doesn't know who it was. He said, that's when hamburger meat was 37 cents a pound. He said, you know how much money we had for, for hamburger meat for the rest of the month? And then he goes on to say, it's when you trust God and you're obedient enough to do what he says that God blows your mind with the stuff that he does. Remember what I said last week? Do you walk with God enough to know God well enough to trust God enough to be 100% obedient regardless of what the cost is. Jesus helps us with that. Give us today the things we need for the day, particularly bread. So where do you go with this? The fact of the matter is all of us are needy. At the deepest level, we're just needy. It is the intelligent person 
And the spiritually informed person who acknowledges that quickly and runs to the supply. And there's only one supply. The one who says, give us today the bread of the day. Which is another way of saying, trust me and I'll blow your mind. Do you have that kind of trust in God? Or do you think it's a radical statement? And my answer is, it's definitely a radical statement. So do you trust him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths here. It's not really one I like to thank you for, frankly. It's one that I find pretty challenging. Father, I believe that part of the nature here is that you have blessed probably every one of us in here at such a level that we have to ask ourselves, okay, why did you do that, God? Why is it that you allow us to have a cabinet full of food? Help us to have sensitivity to your Spirit's work enough to realize that you may very well be blessing us so that we might be the supply for someone who is willing to trust you. Help us to get it right. And in doing so, to impact the lives of needy people for your glory. And when we tend to trust ourselves, we ask that you would graciously and mercifully drive that out of us. In Jesus' name.